Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. You got your Bible with you? Can we go to Revelation chapter 3? Oh, we've got some heavy revers in the house tonight. Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to preach on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are not are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would let any word that I have to say fall to the ground, but let your word go forth with power. May it find good ground and produce a hundredfold in our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. I, uh, over Christmas, myself and the family spent some time back in my home country of Wales. And uh, we were visiting family over there, had a great time. But one of the things that I was determined to do on this particular trip was to visit the birthplace of the Welsh Revival uh, down in South Wales, Moriah Chapel. It's about three or four hours drive from my hometown. Um, but I was determined because of, uh, you know, growing up hearing the stories of the Welsh Revival, and I've shared some of those here before. I won't take time doing that tonight, but... Uh, hearing the stories growing up, and then also because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we've been experiencing here, I was like, I've got to go do this. This is something of a pilgrimage for me. And so uh, we set the date, and uh, myself and Beck, my wife, and my dad, we drove down to South Wales uh, to visit Moriah Chapel. And on my way down there, um, Beck did what all good wives did and fell asleep. Um, so I had some my own thoughts to keep me company. And uh, I was, you know, trying to imagine what it would be like as I walked into the building, you know, would the power of God hit me and I'd fall to the ground or would people be falling to their knees on the street outside and confessing their sin? Would there be a sound of a mighty rushing wind again? And none of that happened. But I sat in this chapel this, this is their main auditorium, holds about 500 people. And I sat in the wooden pew there, and all I can describe is that a heavy weight came on me. 
As I looked around this building, and it's, it's pretty much lying empty 99% of the time. And, uh, there's mold on the walls, and the roof is about to cave in at any point, and the piano is horribly out of tune. <laughs> I left that place that day, drove back to my hometown in Mid Wales, and all I can describe it as was the sorrow of the Holy Spirit that, that gripped me because this, this place that was once a hotbed of revival where they couldn't contain the crowds, they, they were people lying in the streets trying to get in, now lies empty. That uh, epicenter of missionary sending movement now has no minister to even call their own. And as I wrestled with this, don't get me wrong, there's some faithful, good people there who are, who are still caretaking for the place and, and, and you know, showing all the tourists around it, and they're beautiful, beautiful people. But, but it set in motion within me a determination, a zeal of the Holy Spirit never to let the flame that is in the altar of my heart to never let that go out. And so that really birthed this message that I want to share with you tonight because tonight I want to speak to you about being ablaze for God. Ablaze for God. We read this sobering letter in Revelation chapter 3. And it's to the church in Laodicea that is not far removed from the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the Apostle John, after all, that's, that's writing to them on, on Jesus' behalf. And so we don't know exactly who planted this church, whether it was one of the apostles. Perhaps it was one of the 120 that were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Perhaps it was one of the converts that were the 3,000 that came to faith on that day, but regardless, it was, it was still within a generation of Jesus, and yet Jesus writes this kind of letter to them. In their infancy, they'd already lost their way. And Jesus used the physical, practical features of Laodicea to point out some spiritual realities to them. Because he said to them, buy from me gold tried in the fire. Laodicea was known for its uh, booming banking industry. They were the Swiss bankers of the day. He also said to them, buy from me clear white garments. Because Laodicea was known for its textile industry. They had this wool industry. They used to produce this really rich, dark uh, felt cloth from the wool. Not only that, but they were also known for their school of ophthalmology that was famous for its eye salve. And yet Jesus says, you need eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And so the church in Laodicea was very reflective of the culture around it. It was rich, it was comfortable, and it was satisfied. And Jesus said to them, you've become lukewarm. And to the Laodiceans, that would have been something they were very familiar with because for all their banking and textile and medical advances, they had no natural water source of their own. The neighboring cities of Hierapolis and Colossae had hot and cold water springs and 
and they would take that hot water from Hierapolis and they would pipe it in. But by the time it reached Laodicea, it become tepid and dirty and would often make people sick. Jesus is pointing out the fact to them that they've lost their first love, much like the church in Ephesus. It's interesting to note in this letter that they didn't teach any heresy per se. It wasn't like they were teaching a different gospel. They just lost the fire that they'd started with and they burnt with. And in the same way, like boiling water, when you disconnect it from its heat source, like if you take it off the kettle or take it off the pan, what do we say? We say it's returned to room temperature because it mimics the environment that it's in. It just molds into whatever it's around. And that's a warning for us even now, even as we're experiencing this fresh outpouring of the Spirit, that we don't allow ourselves to become comfortable and content. We've heard it said so many times that the Christian life isn't about going from meeting to meeting, even revival service to revival service, from conference to conference, from Sunday to Sunday, but it's from glory to glory. And I feel like my assignment in the Spirit today is to give a prophetic warning that even a fresh, hot, free-flowing river of the Holy Spirit can become tepid, stagnant water if we disconnect from the source. If we become comfortable and passive, we cannot think that this is it now. We cannot think that we've arrived and we've reached the pinnacle. We cannot bide our time and allow the flame of the altar of our hearts to go out. There's a lot of talk about revival right now, not just here, but throughout the body of Christ with hotspots popping up all around the globe. But you know, revival is not a new thing. It's not a man-made buzzword that someone thought up in a creative meeting somewhere. Vance Havner said that we call, what we call revival is simply New Testament Christianity. It's the saints going back to normal. A building's foundation set the precedence for how the rest of the structure will be built. Every now and again, you've got to go back and check the original blueprint to see how aligned you are. Now, it's often slow increments, small degrees of separation that lead to a situation that looked nothing like the original. Recently, I read this story that kind of illustrates this. It was a, of a pastor whose church was undergoing a, a building project. Their current building had grown too small for them, so they were building a bigger auditorium. And the pastor was so keen to get involved, but he didn't really have any practical building experience to speak of, very much like myself. So, but he was so keen. And so the foreman finally found something for him to do, gave him a simple task. He said, can you cut 100 lengths of wood by eight feet long? So the pastor was like, yes, I can do that. And he was so excited. At the end of the day, when everyone had left for the day, he set about his task. And so he got his first piece of wood and measured out eight foot with his tape measure, drew a, drew a line, and then cut that piece of wood. He then put the tape measure away because he thought, rather than using the tape measure 99 more times, I'll just use this piece of wood and mark the next one. And so he cut the first piece of wood, set it aside, and then got the next piece of wood, drew the pencil line with the fresh cut, and put that aside and cut the wood. And then he'd go on so forth. Each piece of wood he cut, he would put the last one on the stack. And 
The problem with that measure of measurement or that method of measurement was that each time he marked with the fresh plank, it was about one-eighth of an inch too long or longer than the last one. And that wouldn't have been a problem if it was only cut in three or four pieces of wood. But a hundred pieces later, his wood was closer to nine foot than it was eight foot. It's small increments. Small deviations amount to great errors over time. You know, we often approach church life this way as well, comparing ourselves with the previous generation with only an eighth of an inch difference. But after 2,000 years of an eighth of an inch differences, we have Christians with values, priorities, and lifestyles that don't look anything like the original standard found in Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. He is our example. He is our original. So what I want to do tonight is quite simple. I want to point us back to Jesus. Just like Jesus invited the Laodicean church to find in him the answers to their lack of zeal, we too find in Jesus the keys to live in a life ablaze for God, a life of the indwelling and the infilling of the Spirit. I want to talk to you about the indwelling and the infilling of the Spirit. We know that Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins. But more than that, He came, as we heard this morning, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and to show us what it was like to live as humans in communion with our Heavenly Father and to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. We need to return to our original blueprint, Jesus. He shows us what it was like to live a life with the indwelling Spirit. The indwelling spirit. See, the distinctive change from the Old to the New Testament is the spirit going from with to in. In the Old Testament, the heroes of the faith, like Moses and and David and so on, they would experience a visitation of God with them. So whether it was Moses standing before the Red Sea or David before Goliath or Samson with the Philistines or Gideon with the Midianites, God would anoint them, clothe them for a certain task or mission. But when that task was complete, the manifestation would cease. But in the New Testament, the very first promise that Jesus gave the disciples concerning the Holy Spirit was in the upper room. And he said, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's not only Emmanuel, God with us, but now dwells within us. We are now temples of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. See, in Jesus, God put on flesh to show that flesh could put on God. Yeah, you can receive that. That's fine. Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray, the leader of the great South African revival in the 19th century, wrote on being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he said, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is God Almighty, dwells in me. Oh, my Father, reveal within me what it means, lest I sin against you by saying it and not living it. Father, reveal to us what it means. We don't just want intellectual knowledge. We need to understand the breadth, the height, and the depth of this ministry. We marvel like the disciples when he said, it's better if I go away. Because then the comforter, the advocate, the paraclete will come to you. What could be better than Jesus walking and talking with us in in physical, visible form? 
I think to myself, if I had Jesus walking and talking with me every single day, life would be probably a whole lot more easier and more productive and more spiritual. I probably wouldn't waste so much time in my life. I probably wouldn't say certain things, use certain words. I probably wouldn't watch certain things if Jesus was right next to me. Nothing too bad, nothing like Liverpool at the moment. That's a very <laughs> unsanctifying process for me this season. But is that right, Pastor Raph? But, but Jesus said, it's better if I leave. Because the same spirit who hovered over the waters in creation, the same spirit who breathed into Adam's lungs and he became a living soul, the same spirit who lit a desert bush on fire and made the ground that Moses stood on holy ground. The same wind and spirit who held back the waters of the Red Sea. The same wind that, that, and spirit that pulled down fire on Elijah's altar and then took him up in a chariot of fire into heaven. The same spirit in Ezekiel's vision of the wheels that compelled and controlled the forces and machinery of nature. The same spirit who planted Jesus in Mary's womb. The same spirit that descended on Jesus like a dove, the same spirit who took a cowardly disciple like Peter and made him a fiery preacher, the same spirit that was with John on the island of Patmos and showed him things in heaven that he couldn't even utter, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and me. The gift of the Spirit is the distinguishing factor of the Christian faith. It is its indwelling presence that is the secret of the Christian life. And if you've confessed your sins and made Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, you have that Spirit dwelling within you right now. He is the guarantee of your salvation. But there's more. Someone say there's more. In Jesus we find that the Spirit is not only the indwelling Spirit, but the infilling Spirit. There is a clear distinction in Scripture between the indwelling of the Spirit and the infilling of the Spirit. On the first day of His resurrection, Jesus met the disciples in the upper room and He breathed on them saying, Receive the Holy Spirit. So they were saved. They belonged to Jesus. Now they had the indwelling of the Spirit, but there was more. Someone say there was more. On the day of his ascension, Jesus commissioned them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. But he said, wait. It was almost like they were about to go. Okay, we'll go. We're ready. We'll go. We're saved. We're, we're passionate and we're going to go. But he said, wait. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Pentecost was the second gift of the Spirit. An infilling presence with an overflowing power. The blessing of Pentecost is the blessing of fullness. Fire, power, courage, and joy had their source in the infilling and the indwelling spirit. They overflowed because they were filled to overflowing. Jesus prophesied this when he stood up on the great day of the feast and he cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why are so many Christians drinking from a stagnant pond when Jesus is offering us rivers of living water? He said, I've come to give you life, but not just life, life more abundantly. 
It is, as Peter wrote, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The sun ascended, and that the Spirit might descend, and he descended in fire. Because fire is a sign of his indwelling presence. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, John's baptism, listen to this, was an external baptism to show an internal transformation of repentance. But Jesus was bringing an internal baptism of the Spirit for an external manifestation of fire. The Spirit has never abdicated His authority or relegated His power in the church. We are in desperate need of His guiding, His sanctifying, empowering presence. I believe that the supreme need of the church is Holy Spirit fire. Say, Joel, how can you say that? That sounds a bit extreme. Well, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the facts of the gospel were complete, but not a single soul was saved. The day of Pentecost came, fire fell, and 3,000 souls were added to the church. One of my favorite stories of Pentecostal fire is found in the life of Samuel Chadwick. He was a Methodist preacher in England in the late 1800s, and as a young pastor, he was really diligent in his preparation to preach. He would spend many hours of day and night in his preparation and his research. But after seven years of preaching to this self-satisfied congregation, he had no fruit to show for his labor. And so he was so discouraged, and he was staring defeat in the face, and he had a real sense of his own lack of power. But he'd heard stories of people getting filled in the Holy Spirit, and he felt an intense hunger kindled within him for more of God. One evening as he was praying over his next sermon, a powerful sense of conviction came upon him. And his pride and his reliance on human methods literally paraded before his eyes as God humbled him. And so as the night wore on and he wrestled and repented, he got out his pile of precious sermons from the last seven years and he threw them into the fire. And immediately the Holy Spirit fell on him. He became known as the preacher that set fire to his sermons and caught the fire of the Holy Spirit. And the tide immediately turned in his ministry. At his very next sermon, seven souls were saved, one for each of his barren years. He called the church to a week of prayer. The following weekend, nearly all of the church were baptized in the Holy Spirit. In the space of a few months, hundreds came to Christ. Churches would be full half an hour before the service even started, to the point where they had to bring in the police for crowd control. Chapels had to be demolished and new churches built as revivals began to spread far and wide. Chadwick would often have 2,500 people at his midweek Bible study. At his midweek Bible study. 2,500, not 25, 2,500. At the end of his life, Chadwick wrote on the gift of Pentecost, destitute of the fire of God, nothing else counts. Possessing fire, nothing else really matters. God, do it again. Do it again, God. The good news for you and me tonight is that you were created flammable. 
You were created flammable. Hallelujah. Something just caught fire then. God chose to use fire as the symbol of his Holy Spirit to help us understand what he longs to do for us. He wants his people to be ablaze for him, ablaze with the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, ablaze with his glory. Fire attracts fire. Fire motivates. Fire kindles fire. Leonard Ravenhill said, you don't need to advertise a fire. It is the nature of fire to set things ablaze. God wants you to be truly ablaze with his Holy Spirit. God has created our spirits flammable. We are spiritually combustible. Our nature is to be set alight and ablaze by the Spirit. We are spiritually most blessed, most victorious, most usable when we are set ablaze. We are most godlike when we glow with the flame of His indwelling Spirit. But the tendency of fire is to go out. The Spirit does not waste divine energy. And if we do not obey and use the grace that God provides, He ceases to bestow. Multiple times, if we read in the book of Leviticus in chapter 6, God instructed that the fire on the altar of burnt offering was never to go out. It was God who initially lit the fire, but it was the priest's responsibility to keep it burning. Why did the fire start? Because of God. Why would it end? Because of man. Any fire will die out if it runs out of materials to burn. It's the same with today. God initiates the outpouring of his Holy Spirit fire, and we sustain or steward the outpouring by never taking our lives off the altar, laying our lives down as living sacrifices that can be consumed with Holy Ghost fire. God supplies the fire, but we must keep it burning. Whatever the cost, we must keep the flame of the Spirit ablaze and burning on the altar of our hearts. It's not passive involvement, but active commitment. I'm telling you, the season of playing church is over. The day of the pew warmer is over. The book of church attendance and the Lamb's book of life do not necessarily have the same content. (laughs) The book of church attendance and the Lamb's book of life do not necessarily have the same content. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, Paul charges Timothy to fan into flame the gift that is within him. The gift was already within him, but it was Timothy's responsibility to fan it into flame. The original Greek language is that of using the bellows. I don't know how many of you have used bellows in the past. You probably don't even understand what that is. But back in the day in Wales, we had open place fires. And so uh, you'd come in from the freezing cold and someone had lit a fire hours ago, but they hadn't stewarded, taken care of the fire. And so you'd come in and it was only a few embers left in there. And you would, you, all you wanted was to get in front of the fire. So you'd yell out of the room, who let the fire go out? And, uh, but then you'd get a whole bunch of sticks, put it on the fire. And then we had these old school bellows. It's like accordion type thing that would suck in the air and then it would blow out. And you had to, it took effort to do. And so, but as the wind from those bellows began to blow on the embers, the fire would ignite again. Maybe tonight the flame on your heart is just a flicker. It's barely there. 
Perhaps there's just enough of an ember for the Holy Spirit to blow on and start the fire again. I believe he's going to send the fire tonight. What's comforting to me is as hard as this passage that we read in Revelation 3 is, Jesus didn't completely cast off the Laodicean church, but he commanded them to be zealous and repent or to be zealous in their repenting. And he gave them keys to once again burn red hot. And the invitation that Jesus extended to the Laodicean church is ours today. So before I close, I just want to share with you quickly from this passage what a life ablaze for God looks like. Jesus said, buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich. Because number one, a life ablaze is purified. A life ablaze is purified. And scripture often uses the picture of purified gold to signify the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you know, the one in charge of purifying this metal would place the container of gold over the fire until the impurities come, start to rise to the surface as it melts. He then carefully skims off the impurities in order to have the purest and most refined gold possible. And the way that he knows it's completely pure is when he can look on the surface and see the undistorted image of his own face, just like a mirror. It's the same process that Jesus uses to refine us. He does so until he can see his likeness in us. And that is the real reason for purifying revival fire so that we can be a better reflection of Jesus to the world around us. You wanna show Jesus to the world? Get in the fire. He also instructed them to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Because secondly, a life ablaze is righteous. A life ablaze is righteous. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. Up until that point, they had been clothed with the glory of God. God's intention for you is not for you to cover up your shame, but that, excuse me, but that the righteousness he paid for with his own blood would so clothe you that your life is ablazed with the glory of God. You know, Zechariah the prophet saw a vision of Joshua the high priest standing in front of the altar and he was dressed in filthy rags. And Satan the accuser was standing there railing accusations against Joshua. But God said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And he was commanded to give him clean garments. You might hear the words of the accuser, but you have a more powerful advocate you too can be a brand plucked from the fire. You wanna get rid of that sin in your life, that addictive behavior, that ungodly nature, get in the fire. He also instructed them to buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Because thirdly, a life ablaze is anointed. A life ablaze is anointed. In the Old Testament, Kings, prophets, and priests were anointed with oil to set them apart in a special sense for God and His service. And that oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon them to set them apart and give them the ability for the task at hand. You know, the word Christ in the Greek is anointed one. We are called Christians. We are anointed ones. You can be an anointed mechanic, anointed student, anointed parent, anointed teacher, anointed pilot, anointed leader. 
You want a greater anointing? Get in the fire. As the team come back on stage and join me here. Finally, Jesus closes his letter to the Laodiceans with a promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Because fourthly, a life ablaze is empowered. A life ablaze is empowered to overcome. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The work of the Spirit requires and depends on the power of the Spirit. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Prayer fuels power because the spirit of power is given to those who pray. I want to speak to every leader, every pastor, every minister in this room for a second right now. Because if you rely on training, you accomplish what training can do. If you rely on skills and hard work, you accomplish what skills and hard work can do. If you rely on strategies and philosophies and education, you accomplish what those things can do. But when you rely on God, you accomplish what God can do. Paul said, my message was not in words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For too long, we've presented a powerless Christianity. We are in danger of being better trained and equipped on the human level than we are empowered by the Spirit, of being more skilled and more experienced than Spirit-anointed. Because I tell you, it's possible to excel in the mechanics of church life and fail in Holy Spirit dynamic. There is a super abundance of machinery in churches. What is lacking is power. Organizations can run events for the masses. Committees can raise millions for their cause. But it is the breath of the four winds that turns death into life and dry bones into mighty armies. And I believe that the sleeping giant that is the church is starting to wake up to the fact that we have had more faith in the world and in the flesh than in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, we've had more faith in the return of Christ than we have in the power of the Gospel. Just get me on that rapture train, get me out of here, Jesus, and fix the rest. But we have the power of the Gospel. We have the indwelling and infilling of the Spirit. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. 
I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life. And I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.